You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Episode 2 of the Core Curriculum. I'm your host. Once again, my name is Michael Farmer. You may know me from the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm also on Before They Were Live, and I make a few appearances here and there. As I said last week, I will not be the only host of this show, but I, here I am again for the second week. Next week, uh, it'll be somebody else. It will, in fact, be my wife, Victoria Reynolds Farmer, who is joining us today. Victoria is the founder and sometimes host of the Christian Feminist Podcast. She lives in Woodstock, Georgia with me. How's it going, Victoria? Doing pretty good. And then our, the third member of our panel this week is Carla Godwin, whom you've heard on the Christian Feminist Podcast and also on the non-network podcast Holy Writ. Carla lives in Minneapolis with her children, two children. How's it going, Carla? It's good. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming. So we're talking about books three and four of the Iliad for this week. If our listeners haven't read those, uh, they might want to go do that. Uh, but if not, that's fine too. Hopefully we'll give you something to think about, even if you haven't. Uh, I want to start with a scene that I called out last week as essential for understanding who the Trojans are. Um, and it's, it's a scene with Helen, uh, Helen of Troy, a, a name that's always been kind of funny to me since the whole point of the book is that she's not of Troy. Uh, but what are you going to do? Um, between Helen and her uh, her father-in-law, Priam. So there's going to be a fight. This is in book three. In my translation, it starts at line 170, but I, I understand that the translations have different line numbers. So in the Stanley Lombardo that I'm using, it's 170. Uh, th- there's going to be a fight between Helen's current husband, Paris, and her former husband, Menelaus, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to solve the entire war, and whoever wins is going to... Um, is going to win the war, essentially. And Helen comes to watch it. She's led by a goddess uh, to come watch it. And as she walks out, uh, all of the the Trojans start talking crap about her because, of course, uh, in in their eyes, she's the one who who started this entire war uh, that's going to kill so many of them. So everybody's talking bad about her. And it says, but Priam called out to her, Come here, dear child, sit next to me so you can see your former husband and dear kinsman. You are not to blame for this war with the Greeks. The gods are. And then he starts asking her about the various Greek warriors, which gives Homer the opportunity to introduce them all. I find that moment really remarkable, this this moment of tenderness between Priam and Helen. Uh, And in part, that's because there aren't a whole lot of moments of tenderness in this poem. but I, I just wonder what you guys think of it, or whether you're as struck by it as I am. I feel like there is a sense of um, a moment of like humanity here between Priam and Helen that you don't see in a lot of places. I think I'm actually more struck by the ridicule that she receives from the warriors. I feel like it introduces a thing actually that that has been on my mind in general, and then was stirred by reading books uh, three and four. Um, in that, like in a patriarchal structure where 
the, the goal is to find the dominant male, that there are both, there are two necessities to that. There are the sort of female commodity that goes along with that. And then there are disposable males. <laughs> and those two things are essential for there to be like a patriarchal structure that has one single dominant male. And this, this whole poem is just sort of a conversation about who is the dominant male and how do you prove dominant malehood and what happens in terms of like um, proving the hero? How do you prove the hero? And required for that are women that you can trade back and forth and men that you can kill off because they follow you. Do you know what I mean? That's very, so, very interesting. Yeah. So to me, like where these it, that there's uh, some sense of ridicule from these sort of disposable males in this, <laughs> you know, toward the woman who is equally sort of oppressed or opposed in this structure is just a fascinating, a fascinating conflict in a patriarchal structure that these two points of oppression, rather than joining and noting their common oppression, would find themselves at odds based on the way that they're used by the sort of hero or dominant male. Does that make sense? It, it does. But I, I wonder um, if their identity is important. I didn't say this when I introduced the scene, but they're not just they're not really warriors. These are the old men. These are the old veterans. Too old to mm. fight now, it says, but excellent counselors. So I, I've written in my notes, old men, old men at McDonald's. These are guys who are too old to <laughs> actually do anything. So they sit around talking, but they're, they're supposed to be wise. And so they're mm. the ones who are they're the ones who are bad mouthing her. And it's one of them. It's Priam, who's an old man who who tells tells her not to worry about what they have to say right no that's super interesting and i'm curious too like they're the sort of commentators on the whole thing right because right before that just earlier in book three you have um uh alexander you have paris basically saying i've given up war we're gonna go and he thinks that's gonna test the bravery of his warriors and they're gonna be like no oh, no we want to fight we want to do this with you and instead they, <laughs> they flee back the ships as quick as they can right he has zero understanding of the fact that all these men he's brought with him as their he and he's their hero and that's how he senses himself are actually not with him they're there because they have to be you know what i'm saying right they um, all hate him even his brother right right so there's some sense of like the, these old men are observing what's happened to those disposable males and the sort of lack of morale and the suffering that they've been through and then saying blaming it on the woman <laughs> when the point is both of those sets of people are are equally they're they're equally oppressed or in the positions that they're in to prove sort of the heroism or the dominance of of a particular male. So I agree with all of that, and this is definitely a super patriarchal system. But what do we do with the fact that Helen super blames herself? Um, we we get a much more nuanced emotional view of her in this. Uh, in this text than we do in other plays. I was looking back um, earlier today uh, in Euripides' Oresteia, where she's basically just a bobblehead. So this is better than that. But um, what do we do with the fact that she blames herself here? Is it just internalized patriarchy? I, I feel like that's a little bit overly simplistic. Especially since what, what Priam's response is, is... Not um, this is Paris's fault. It's the, this is the gods' fault, which is the same thing Paris says when uh, when Hector hectors him earlier in the book. That this is the, the gods are the ones doing these things, not us. And I mean, it's a, it's a it's a matter of debate throughout ancient Greek literature, right? What it means 
for fate to exist, what it means for the gods to do things versus human free will. And so I, I think however you read it, you're going to have to come down on some sort of mixed version of divine and human responsibility. But I agree with Victoria. It's interesting that Priam lets her off the hook, but she doesn't let herself off the hook. And I want to um, I want to go to a bit in my translation and ask you what your translation says. Uh, which which um, translation are you using, Victoria? The the Richard Lattimore. Richmond. Is it? Is it Richmond? Yes, it is. It is. Yeah, Sorry about that. Oh, who, who are you using, Carla? I like to put these in the show Samuel, notes. Um, hang on. I'm going to check just to be sure I get his last name right. Uh, Samuel Butler. Okay, great. Oh, you've got the you've got an old one. Mm-hmm. Cool. Okay, so where, where's the passage, Victoria? Um, so after Priam says he doesn't blame her, uh, the first few lines of her response to him, which starts at about 171 in my edition, Uh, Helen, shining among women, answered and spoke to him, Always to me, beloved father, you are feared and respected, and I wish bitter death had been what I wanted when I came hither following your son, forsaking my chamber, my kinsman, uh, my grown child, the loveliness of girls my own age. It did not happen that way. Now I am worn with weeping. This now I will tell you in answer to the question you asked me. Uh, This is Agamemnon, she says, uh, at the same time, a good king and a strong spear fighter, once my kinsman, slut that I am, did this ever happen? So she calls herself a slut. Do you have that word in your translation? i bitch is Lombardo's translation. So I have neither of those in her response, which is it's interesting because I was kind of, as you all were talking, thinking that's not how I read her response to him was not a self-blame and it makes a lot of sense if I read you the response that I have it's not that it um so in the Samuel Butler one it's sir answered Helen father of my husband dear and reverend in my eyes would that I had chosen death rather than to have come here with your son far from my bridal chamber my friends my darling daughter and all the companions of my girlhood but it was not to be and my lot is one of tears and sorrow as for your question, the hero of whom you ask is Agamemnon, Agamemnon, that's very hard, son of Atreus, a good king and a brave soldier, brother-in-law as surely as that he lives, to my abhorred and miserable self. So she, she doesn't necessarily say, I chose to come here instead of staying where I was. She says, I, I came here, I, but it doesn't sound like she chose it. It sounds as if it was her lot, it was what happened to her, and that she is abhorred and miserable, but not necessarily um, that she considers herself to be shameful. And and you, we both have very gendered terms, and you don't. And I think that's coloring our um, our responses to this too. Right. I have to say, I find Helen much more interesting as a character when she reproaches herself, not because I think she's right to do so, but because the the traditional reading of Helen is is this haughty, proud woman who doesn't care what happens to the Greeks. And if if she blames herself for what's happened, especially if it's not actually her fault, I find that portrait to be a little more nuanced. Yeah, I agree. She She's an actual person with feelings and some uh, form of agency rather than the kind of uh, the kind of really flat um, Faustian face that launched a thousand ships and burnt the topless towers of Ilium, you know? Right. I'm curious, because I think that goes back to the, the way that you would interpret 
whatever happened between her and Paris to begin with, whether it was that he took her from her husband's house or she went with him. Those are different scenarios. And I think I don't actually know which interpretation is um, more common or the way that that story is typically known other than the fact that like, wasn't she given to him by which goddess? Aphrodite. <laughs> Aphrodite. Right. So, so he like Paris won her by saying Aphrodite was the most beautiful of the goddesses. Correct. So I don't know. It's interesting because to me, where does the self blame come in? I agree with the nuance of that, that she gets to then take on some fuller humanity. If she has some sense of remorse, even if she was taken, just the fact that all of this is happening in her name would be enough cause for remorse, right? For a human. Um, so she does seem more human in y'all's interpretations, but do you, do you have a sense of like the relationship between her and Paris, whether that was one of, of her choosing of like love and she chose that or it was one imposed on her. I think this text says that the latter is more true because of the number of times, um, the number of times Paris and other uh, soldiers use the phrase Helen and all her possessions as, as being what he won. Like it's not just about her, it's her and a bunch of stuff. And she is basically the same as the bunch of stuff. Yeah, totally. I, I also think Aphrodite's role in this is interesting. Um, so in such a patriarchal book, in some ways, the, at least in, in books three and four, the most powerful god we see is Aphrodite, who causes this whole thing by making whatever happens between Paris and Helen happen. But then also makes the war continue by snatching Paris away from the battlefield when he's about to die uh, in, in something that is just unbelievably unfair i i i there's there's no way to get around how awful what she did is because i mean the war could have ended in book three if uh if if aphrodite hadn't interfered and not only that she she then takes paris up to the bedroom and essentially makes helen have sex with him he also says let's have sex uh yeah but helen this is uh this is line 438 in the lombardo uh, I'm not going back there, she says. It would be treason to share his bed. The Trojan women would hold me at fault. I have enough pain as it is. So she doesn't even want to see him again. And Aphrodite, angry with her, said, Don't vex me, bitch, or I may let go of you and hate you as extravagantly as I love you now. I can make you repulsive to both sides, you know, Trojans and Greeks, and then where will you be? So, I mean, I, I really see, at least in the translation of this I'm reading, I really see Helen as a deeply tragic figure. This is a This is a woman who wants to do the right thing over and over again, wants to be loyal both to the Greeks and to the Trojans, whom she clearly sees as a family, and yet is not allowed to do that because of her beauty. Right. Yeah, I, I, my translation actually has um, Paris saying to her, don't vex me, wife. That's so interesting. Yeah, so it is interesting. Like, I think these moments of, like, translation shifts are really fascinating to me because it is certainly that Aphrodite brings her to the bedroom, but then um, she says similarly, oh, wait, so hang on. She says to him, I love this word in my translation. Helen says to Aphrodite, who's Venus in my translation, I can garnish his bed no longer. That she uses the word garnish. <laughs> it's that's, one of my that's pretty great. Instead of share. Right? Right. That her beauty is like just an additive to his to his bed is is fascinating, just like a thing to look at. Um, and Venus was angry and says, bold hussy, do not provoke me. 
Yeah, I think we're want... looking at two different scenes because right. mine does have Paris saying, don't insult me, Helen. Okay, there it is. Yep. So I think they're both there. I think you're right. Um, but I think your point, Michael, about beauty um, is just an interesting one because, again, like, I don't know, this is this is just a in some ways a basic feminist point, but like that, that in this again, super patriarchal structure, wherein, you know, a dominant male is kind of always the question, who's the dominant male at what time, um, the way that women gain some form of dominance is by their beauty. Right. But that, that dominance is still entirely, or that importance maybe is a better word. I don't think it's dominance is, is still entirely male centric because it's only as a subjective, um, you know, measure of what the men think in terms of their beauty. And it sets them at odds, like the moment in which um, the different goddesses are are weighing who is the most beautiful and um, what it's the goddess uh, who is, um, what's what's her name, who sends the apple to them and they have to decide what's her name. Eris. Right. And she's strife, right? And so she she gives she sends the apple. Then there's strife between them, and they have to decide who's the most beautiful. Which is just, and then that that is given to the men to decide. <laughs> it's given to Paris to decide, right? So that whole thing, like where a woman gains her her sense of um, value in this culture, is still entirely male centric and only through beauty that has no bearing on her um, abilities or morals or anything other than an external thing that a male can judge. Well, and, and not only that, the power that it brings a woman is the power to be dragged off by her hair. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Like, so Helen's the most beautiful woman in the world. If beauty is power for women in this society, you would think it would make her the most powerful woman in the world. And yet she didn't seem to have any power at all to me. Right. Totally. Most to be pitied among women. Right. Though, like, one of the things we, you all talked about, I think, in the first episode that I think is interesting is um, just a sort of goal toward immortality and towards um, names continuing to be spoken. Like, there's this idea that I've heard several times of, like, you die, you die three times, you die when you die, but then you have another death when your name is no longer said again. Like, the last time your name is said is, like, another death, you know? And so... If you think in terms of immortality, the fact that we still say Helen's name, whether she's fictional or not, is is a fascinating like, oh, that's interesting. That that person never dies and that their name never stops being said. Probably the most famous uh, woman in Greek mythology, I would say. I don't know who would be more famous. I mean, some of the goddesses are, but. Mm-hmm. That's that's a bunny trail, but it um, just occurs to me like if if power is in some way aligned with immortality. Well, that's the reason that she is the one conjured um, by Mephistopheles in Faustus. I already said the really famous quote, but um, she represents um, the most womanly of womanhood at that point in the play. um, Because at first he says, I want to be immortal and that doesn't work out. And then he says, I want to rule the entire world and that doesn't work out. And then he says, well, I just want to have the most beautiful woman. And then the spirit called forth is Helen of Troy. So, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. And that literature going forward proves that. The other thing I wanted to talk about with this scene, and I'm sorry we're spending so much time on it, but it's one of my favorite scenes in the whole Um, the whole poem, even though it's pretty short. There's not a lot of tender moments, and the three I can think of 
um, throughout the poem are this one. Uh, at the very end, when Priam comes and asks for uh, Hector's body back, and then the scene with Hector and Andromache, I think that's in book eight or nine, uh, when when she's trying to get him not to go to war. So it's interesting to me that the three the three scenes where people are gentle with each other are Trojan scenes. Uh, one striking thing about the poem is there's not a whole lot of difference in terms of outlook or philosophy between the Greeks and the Trojans. And I just wonder if that tenderness, which I'm inclined to read positively, is actually meant to be a bad thing, that, that this shows that the Trojan men are weak and uh, thus to be despised. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I heard you all make a point in episode one about um, there not being sort of an other here, that the societies are so similar and they're all sort of doing the same thing, working toward the same ends just for their own uh, island or tribe or empire, however you want to talk about it. Um, and so that what you're saying there, Michael, implies that maybe actually there was a sense of um, of softness or otherness about the Trojans and that there was some level of um, humanity there that kept them from being dominant. Um, is that is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah. The, I mean, I, I'm not sure as a modern reader who who comes to the Iliad and, and walks away not preferring the Trojans to the Greeks, not understanding why Achilles is supposed to be so much better than Hector. Um, and I, I think that maybe what we're not seeing is that what we see as a virtue, that softness, is actually a vice for the original audience of this poem. But I don't know. I'm not a you know I'm not a scholar of ancient Greek literature. I've I've uh, been confronted a lot with my own 21st century virtues and and how of my time they are reading this that that's something that has really um, jumped out at me. What are other ones, Victoria? I'm curious. Um, I get frustrated at how much the goddesses specifically seem to have the same. Um, hyper-patriarchal values as um, men and also gods. Uh, I, I want them to act in solidarity with mortal women, especially Hera, who is supposed to be the goddess of not just marriage, but married women. So you would think that Hera would like try to throw Helena bone, except she doesn't at all. She's like, oh, hey, here's three cities we can trade. Cool. <laughs> Well, well, Helen, you know, Helen destroyed a marriage. Also, Paris Paris chose Aphrodite over Hera, so whatever her patronage, Hera is too petty to let that go. Yeah, I just I can't. Book four to me is just entirely about how nothing matters except that the gods are jerks and they're gonna do what they want. Well, yeah, let's let's turn to that. So the the passage you're talking about, I've got on uh, it's line 39 of book four. And again, the line numbers will be different. So uh, our listeners can do what you guys can't do, which is pause it and find it and then come back. Um, Zeus, Zeus is arguing with Hera, as he often does, and says, I don't understand you, woman. What have Priam and his children done to you that you are so fixed on demolishing Ilian's stronghold down to its last well-laid brick? So he, he points out this thing that you point out, right? That she has this really unnatural 
incomprehensible impetus against uh, Troy. Um, but he goes, and then she essentially evokes the sunk uh, invokes the sunk cost fallacy when she talks about it. Th- this is a poem about the sunk cost fallacy. I agree with that. But um, look at what he says a few lines later, but before she talks again, he says. I'll tell you this, and you take it to heart. So he's going to let her destroy Troy, even though he doesn't understand why she wants to. The next time I have a passion to smash a city and I choose one with men dear to you in it, don't try to curb my anger. It's a real uh, alien versus predator uh, situation when you're talking about Mount Olympus, which is whichever god wins, we lose. Uh, When we talk about justice, it's not about, like, people being rewarded for their good actions. It's about, well, this God let you destroy that city. So next time we're going to destroy your city. My my notes next to that section say he is gaslighting her, but she is also terrible. I am team. No one. (laughs) Is he he really gaslighting her? I mean, he's, he's being pretty open about what this is, that her, her rage against Troy is unnecessary. He has unnecessary rage against other cities that she might like. So don't come crying to me when I destroy one full of people you like. But I, I feel like the fact that he prefaces all of that with like, None of what you're doing makes sense. Well, yeah, none of what any of y'all on Mount Olympus do makes sense. That's your entire M.O. Like, I feel like him holding that against her is completely dumb. Yeah, maybe. Right. It's like they're just bored and have to figure out where to make conflict so that they can have some level of entertainment, you know? Um, <laughs> Was it, is it in book four where Hephaestus is worried that the the fight between Zeus and Hera will disrupt the party they're about to have? I don't think that is in book four. That, that's somewhere. Maybe it's in one of the first two. I, I remember reading it. Yeah, they're, they're, they're about to fight, and Hephaestus is like, hey, guys, uh, cool down. We're about to have a party. <laughs> that's fantastic. Hephaestus is great, but sadly that is not in book four. But I do love him very much. I need to get an updated translation because all our names are different and everything. So, I mean, It'd I'm be like, Vulcan for you. What's that? It'd be Vulcan for you. That's the Latin name. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting thing to talk about in all of this, as you were saying, Michael, like where where the responsibility lies and what are the gods trying to achieve, if anything? And what do we understand? Like our, our understanding of God is such a different thing where God is, you know, in a Christian understanding of God, God is benevolent, God is sovereign, God is, you know, various things and these these gods seem to have none of that as their way of being so trying to like again with our 21st century ideologies like get that out enough to say what was the relationship in this greek mythology between humans and gods and really what were the gods trying to achieve if anything were they also in some sort of a patriarchal competitive mode and just constantly trying to see who's dominant is that is that it is that all that's driving them or is there some sense of like heading somewhere or wanting to achieve some end? It doesn't very often seem that they are collaborative about that. So they seem entirely self-interested, each of them. Yeah. And they are, they are obviously always trying to one-up each other. So, so the fight between Menelaus and Paris is really a fight between Ares and Aphrodite. Love and right. war. Right. Right. Which is fascinating. So that's fascinating too. If you go back again to like, when Paris chose Aphrodite and Helen, basically, like, I guess each of the goddesses offered him 
a reward for choosing them, right? And he chose Helen and love rather than war or fame. And so that that's even interesting in, in light of what you were talking about, Michael, with weakness in the Trojans or like in um, just in the whole idea of a patriarchal dominance structure where violence and, and competition are primary. He chose in some ways like love or collaboration or, or something other than that. He didn't choose military might or fame. He chose something else, you know, um, so I don't know what to make of Paris overall in general, but that's an interesting choice in light of what happens in the rest of the poem. Um, and that basically the competitive thing ends up killing off everybody. <laughs> so, so um, I don't know. It's just, it's an interesting uh, relationship there between who, who's, who's in combat here and what are they trying to achieve? The goddesses, the men, and what are the rewards for their actions or consequences? Yeah. I think it's telling that when Menelaus and Paris square off against each other, everybody on both sides are, are happy because that means they're not going to have to fight the war. Like mm -hmm. they recognize that this thing is stupid, that there's no reason to do it. And they welcome the opportunity to get out of it. But when that doesn't work, when Aphrodite comes and swoops Paris away, uh, they're all very excited to fight again. Right. I don't know. Again, with the disposable male thing, like I think that, again, goes to like, those men didn't want to fight. They had no personal reason to be there to fight other than to try to make one man dominant over another. Um, but then you're right. Then the poet just turns them back into these warriors who are anxious to, to kill each other again, <laughs> rather than people who are like, yeah, y'all just sort this yourself. It's your problem. Um, I'm not actually going to help, you know? Yeah. You keep using that word disposable. And I'm, I am I get what you're saying, because I mean, especially moving forward, we're going to watch a lot of people get spears through their heads. Mm -hmm. But also, I um, I think Homer works really hard to dignify all of these red shirts who die. Um, I'm trying to find an example. So the battle begins in earnest at the end of book four, and it is horrible, right? I mean, the, the descriptions of death in this book are, are unsparing. Uh, so this is line 473, and we're gonna we're gonna look at the death of Simoesius, I think his name is. But listen to this description: One early victim was Anthemion's son, Simoesius, a blossoming lad whom whom Telamone and Ajax marked and hit. His mother bore him on the Samoas's banks on her way down from the slopes of Ida, where she had gone to see her family's flocks. So his parents called him Simoesius, but he died before he could pay them back for rearing him. As he advanced in the Trojan front lines, the bronze point of Ajax's spear pierced his right nipple and ripped through his shoulder. He fell down to the ground and lay in the dust. A poplar that has grown up in rich bottom soil with a smooth trunk branching out at top catches the eye of a Wainwright who wants to curve it into a pole for a fine chariot. He cuts it with a few flashing strokes of his axe, and now it lies drying by the riverbank. So on the one hand, with this guy, who is minor, right? I, I've never even heard of him. He he dies, and we get this history of his family naming him, which I think is very moving. And then also he gets this long, beautiful, horrifying, epic simile um, about knocking down a tree. So they are disposable. I get that. But they're not disposable the way people are in modern action movies. They're given they're given lives that reverberate beyond the pages of the poem in a way that I'm not sure I would have expected. 
because rhetoric and argumentation is such a Greek virtue. Yeah. I, I, th- I think you sort of have to think about um, the, the way that talking and talking in a way that suits audience and occasion is, is all through this poem and is what makes people good leaders when they are good leaders. Um, there's a, a section before that battle um, where Agamemnon is sort of rallying the troops and uh, he goes through and talks about several people and says why they're good soldiers. Um, he gets to a couple, I wanted to call out their names, but I can't find them now. Um, but he gets to a couple of guys and said, uh, well, I don't even need to call you out by name because you're so good at following directions that I don't need to be specific about you. And then he goes on and talks about um, Nestor and Nestor's wisdom and, and the wisdom of age. But I thought, like, that is very Greek, and he's being a good leader in a very Greek way because he understands how to motivate that specific audience through argument. Yeah, I think that's super interesting, Victoria, because I think um, – Again, it depends on how you read what the purpose is of these men and their deaths. If they're, if it's an end in itself that this man was lost, he didn't get to pay his parents back for his upbringing because he didn't live long enough. Is that for his own sake or is that for the sake of boosting the hero for whom he was sacrificed? Um, you know what I'm saying? So disposable to me doesn't mean that they're like all re- redundant or the same. It means that their lives are not valued in such a way that they would be preserved and these for you know they are worth sacrificing to prove dominance Um, and I I think it's based on other conversations I've been having about like how does patriarchy impact men as well as women and how does that happen and and the idea that patriarchy requires a whole bunch of men who are whether or not they're disposable to death you know what I mean like that they they are that whatever, even economically, you can have disposable men who are just set up to work so that certain people can maintain their economic dominance. Um, And I I think that those, that idea that it requires so many bodies to keep certain people in power and in, and in in this case, in dominance and heroism um, is just an interesting one. Um, So the word disposable is coming from other conversations I've been having, but I agree with you that he does seem to go to, to ends to, to name lots of people who are in this battle, who he probably only names this one time or, or the time he does in book two or whatever. He, he does actually name all these people. But I'm curious if he does that, if it, if it is a rhetorical move to say these people were, were something and important because they and that makes that person who they followed that much more important. So their death is tragic, but only but it, but it still reinforces the power of, of the one hero. Does that make sense? Yeah, I don't, I don't know that that's an either or. I, 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 get, your, I get your point about um, the fact that this guy has a story now makes Ajax's conquering of him even more um, significant. But also, I mean, that's a long story if it's just going to feed Ajax. I, I, if this poem is about giving glory to the warriors, I think it gives at least a little to these people who are being named and then mowed down. Mhm. Yeah, I hear that. I do. And I think the the poetry of it is is beautiful and is meant to move an audience. I agree with Victoria on that. It's meant to move the readers to be like, "Oh, this is so this is such a tragic thing, you know?" So, 
But it's, I mean, it's obviously a hierarchical society and, and, a, and, a, and a poem that's concerned with establishing that hierarchy once and for all. So I, I, I take your point there, too, as well. And I mean, I think I see hierarchy so much as mostly competitive. Like when I think about it, I think about it as a competitive system more than I think about it as like a particular structure. It's, it's just one of competition wherein there's only one top. And so competition is inherent in it. You can't get away from it. You can't collaborate. You have to have a power over structure. You can't have a power with structure because it just doesn't allow for it. So, um, so even in as much as this person died for the sake of Ajax, if this person had had risen in power, no matter how noble or wonderful he was, he wouldn't have been able to come up alongside of Ajax and have a common importance. He would have had to be crushed or crush, you know? Sure. So the, the death is an inevitable, an inevitable outcome of, of a competitive hierarchy, hierarchical, hierarchical system. Well, it's definitely the the necessary outcome of a war. <laughs> you, you know? <laughs> right. The other thing you get with the with the battles is that it's not just the big men going at each other, because there's a there's a limited number of big men, right? The ones Helen points out uh from the wall. Uh each of these guys commands hundreds, if not thousands, of soldiers of his own. And and those people don't really seem to have much of a will of their own. So uh, right before the battle starts in book four, there's this hush that falls over the crowd. And Homer goes out of his way to point out that the hush is not about them being afraid to die. It's about them being afraid of their rulers. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a hush because they sense that the leaders of the battle want there to be a hush. And that's very interesting to me. Yeah, I think that that when I think about the hordes of people whose names we don't know and that, that, that they are just, uh, yeah, basically enthralled to, to a few people. It's fascinating. A few people, but that doesn't stop there from being two Ajaxes. I like that big Ajax and little Ajax, <laughs> just like in kindergarten. Right. I think that the other part that of these two books, that's funny to me is just at the beginning when Paris comes and just says, let send out your champion and fight, have him fight me. And then Menelaus comes out to fight him and he run Paris just runs away. Yeah. Runs in <laughs> and and uh, I like, did he not expect it to be, Menelaus? you know, like, I don't know. And Menelaus isn't even the most powerful of the Greeks, you know, what would they have, what would Paris have done if they'd sent Achilles out or even Agamemnon, who I, I take to be more powerful than Menelaus. It's, there's nothing at all admirable about Paris. There's not a single thing um, in the description of him in this poem or anywhere else I've ever read that makes you think, yeah, you know, Paris has his good sides too. Well, He's I the think, worst. I think the fact that he chooses love is interesting, but he certainly never seems to like actually stand for it. But I, but I think, chooses lust. <laughs> possibly. That's possible. At least he doesn't choose a dominance, I guess. Although it turns into dominance over her for sure. Yeah. But I, it's still dominance. It's slavery. Like I, I don't, it's a different flavor of dominance maybe, but I, I think it's just as bad if not worse, because he still gets to peacock around and be like sexy guy and run away when the battle gets tough. Right. Right. I totally hear that. But what, what I find kind of, this is a human moment to me a little bit too, Michael, the thing you were pointing out about, um, it wasn't even the most powerful 
person. It was actually his direct rival. It was her former husband, right? So, so it makes me wonder if he was running out of cowardice, like fear for life or out of like a sense of shame, hmm. you know, like I'm now having to look you in the eye and that's a thing I can't do. That too. I would, I think, I think the poem would code as cowardice. He, totally. he doesn't have that, the, if that's, if that's true though, it certainly changes my reading of Paris's actions in the room with Helen following that. If, if he's ashamed upon seeing Menelaus, then then his actions to Helen seem like um, not justifiable because he's a jerk and then he tries to force himself on her. But um, like they follow more logically to me from a place of shame. Right. Yeah, I agree with that. Can, will you like go back to that scene and say what, what rings that way to you? I'm just curious. Uh, okay, so after she says, so you came back from fighting, oh, how I wish you had died there. This is like 427-ish in book three. Uh, I wish you had died there, beaten down by the stronger man who was once my husband. There was a time before you now boasted that you were better than more like Menelaus in spear and hand and your own strength. Uh, and then she says, um... No, don't don't fight him anymore. You may very well go down before his spear. Paris then answers her, Lady, censure my heart no more in bitter reprovals. This time Menelaus with Athena's help has beaten me. Another time I shall beat him. We have gods on our side. Also, come then, rather let us go to bed and turn to lovemaking. Never before as now has passion enmeshed my senses. So when you talk about him being ashamed... I think that makes the fact that she says, really, I think Menelaus is a better fighter than you anyway, uh, so you shouldn't fight him. Um, I read, uh, let's just stop talking about this and have sex as like a deflection. Right, right. Like it's not a thing I want to process because it's not going right. to solve that. I just want to avoid it. Right. And right before that, before the deflection, he rationalizes. Sometimes the gods are on their side. Next time, the gods will be on our side. You know, it's, it's not about honor and strength and him being a better fighter. It's just sometimes side A, sometimes side B. Right, right. Which, there's some truth to that, right? I'm, I'm trying to look it up and, and see what that fight looked like, how much Athena really helped. Um, well, he prays to Zeus... I don't see Athena showing up at all. Yeah, so it is just complete rationalization. Right, right. Well, it's before when she helps, right? When she prevents Menelaus from being really badly wounded by uh, Pindar, Cesare. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. but that, that's after Paris says that. So Right, yeah. yeah. Not, not that Athena's same. not on the Greek side, that's obvious, but she doesn't actually play any direct role in this battle. The only person who does is Aphrodite. Because yeah, no, Zeus, Zeus refuses to intervene. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, it's, Menelaus is just genuinely beating him. And though he's reframing it, it seems like to Helen in a way that makes himself just feel less, less low, you know? Um, he's the one who's rescued, right? Paris is the one who's rescued by a goddess. It's not Menelaus who is. So, 
It's definitely a reframe. (laughs) I just don't think Paris has a single virtue that the original audience would have recognized as a virtue. And, And for that reason... Um, it's really significant. This doesn't happen in the poem itself, but in the myths, Paris is the one who kills Achilles. So it's it's this triumph of vice over virtue. Uh, the 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 weakest man in the whole poem ends up killing the strongest man because you know that's the way that's the way the fates would have it. I got in trouble once in high school for yelling about how unfair that was in class. I got sent out of the classroom into the hall to collect myself. That is my favorite. That you were sent out is not my favorite, but that you were angry about it is wonderful. Did you pound your fist on the table? Probably. I do that sometimes. Well, and and right in the myths, Paris defeated Achilles with an arrow, which it was... Um, a, a cowardly weapon is that yeah. is that accurate? That's my that's my that's my understanding as well. That yeah, people didn't like archers because they didn't actually have to risk anything in the battle. Mm-hmm. I don't know right. that that's true of archers, but I, I think that's how people thought of them. Yeah, and and then I guess Paris was then also killed by a arrow, right in the midst. I don't blood. remember what happens to Paris. That's my my memory of it. Um, so. I don't know, but not in the poem, right? That's not the... Yeah, yeah, because the, the poem ends before the battle, the the big final storming of Troy actually starts. I mean, people who people who don't know the Iliad and come to it are, are surprised to learn sometimes uh, that the Trojan horse doesn't appear in this poem. It is it is interesting. I feel like I'm actually not... I've read all of the Odyssey and, and studied it a little bit more. The Iliad, I've not spent a lot of time on. So I'm like, oh, this is all... It's different. It feels a lot different. Um yeah, you, you could certainly see why somebody would think, first of all, I, I seriously doubt there was one person called Homer. I think this is probably a compilation. But uh, the the Odyssey and the Iliad don't feel the same to me at all. Um, and if I read ancient Greek, I could tell you whether they they sounded the same. I mean, because both of them sound like Stanley Lombardo when I read them. Um, but they're, they're definitely very different poems. Mm-hmm. What else do you guys want to talk about? Oh, I think there's a funny paragraph um, where Hector is um, making fun of Paris and basically saying, you're super handsome and you love women, but you're false of tongue and all these other things. And um, <laughs> and Paris says, uh, his rebuke is just in that he started the, the battle. But then he said, um, he says, still taunt me not with the gifts that golden Venus has given me. They are precious, let not a man disdain them, for the gods give them where they are minded, and none can have them for the asking. Um, the whole idea that like he's being mocked and ridiculed for being handsome and a woman lover, and he just basically is like, no, 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 no. <laughs> the goddess gave me that. Leave me alone. You know, something about his rebuke there is just funny to me. Yeah, he really, he really is uh, very weak. Especially when you contrast him with some of the other warriors, like, um, to be the opposite of this is Diomedes, um, who is leading his men by saying, um, you know, don't don't let the people who are taunting you uh, get your goat. Uh, You you have your own power and and do as I tell you and trust me, um, but don't, uh, don't pay attention to dissenting voices. So I, I feel like that's a, you know, a 
the right kind of response to taunts in battle. Right. But I think, I, I don't know if I would say, did you say Michael that he's just totally weak? I, sometimes I feel like he's asserting a different kind of, of power, you know, in a, in a culture wherein like the might of military might is the thing that creates dominance in some ways what Paris is doing is actually just saying, oh, no, my beauty, my uh, charm, these are the things by which I've gained dominance. And, and those are the things that other men tend to be jealous of me for. So he's not necessarily weak, I would say. He's actually saying, oh, no, my power is other than yours. It's not the same as yours, but it is equally power. It is power. It's a thing that gains me what I want. It's so a woman's it power. It's a, you could call it, sure. At the, I mean, I think that that would be how it would be framed in this, in these terms, but it's fascinating that other men then I think are quite, I, you can say they just ridicule it, but I would also say they're jealous of it. So he does have a sense of, of uh, some other kind of dominance that they're not sure what to do with. I think it's an interesting point. Um, I still think Paris is the worst. Um <laughs> I, I like what you're saying about a different kind of power, but, and I, I think it's true to a degree, but he still, despite his different kind of power, participates very similarly in the trading of women, sex slavery, that the rest of them who are employing more traditional seems like the wrong word, but more hyper-masculine forms of masculinity. So even he with his, what we're calling more womanish kind of power is still enmeshed in this um, system of trafficking in women. So I, I don't know. He still exercises dominance over, over women. I would say his way of, of participating in the male competitive structure is entirely different. And to me, uh, pulls some of it into question. I think that's something we can recognize from a distance. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that the the bards who composed the poem would have thought about that. I, I, I just don't think that his virtues are recognizable as virtues from their point of view. Because if you look at the if you look at the people who are who we are clearly meant to admire in the poem, Hector, Achilles, Agamemnon to some extent, Menelaus, none of them look like Paris at all. Right. But I, I agree that that from our perspective, we we can see that in a in a kind of almost Nietzschean way, don't you think? As um, as an alternate route to power. That he, this isn't exactly what you said, but it reminds me of that section in On the Genealogy of Morals, where he talks about how the priests didn't have any physical power, so they had to invent a new kind of power that ended up being, in its way, more powerful. Mm-hmm. I think I think maybe maybe that is what Paris is doing. He's kind of doing a workaround to make up for the fact that he doesn't have certain physical gifts. Right. Right. I think, I think that that is similar to what I'm, what I'm trying to say. And I, I, um, whether or not the, the bards who wrote this meant that as a virtuous power, I do think they were at least saying, huh, not everyone had like they're they're They do at least contrast it to some degree. Um, whether or not they value it more highly, I think is a question. Um, but at least his exi- the, the fact that Paris exists and has these particular gifts bestowed on him um, does at least say there may be other ways to power. 
and other ways to to achieve that. That he doesn't do something other that he doesn't do something more collaborative with that power is disappointing to me from my vantage point in the 21st century that he still is in some way um, competitive with it or that he uses it as a as a mode of dominance over women who are who are hierarchically less than him um, is disappointing. But I do find it I do find him interesting in that he does frame another kind of power. Yeah, I think if you're looking in this poem for someone who defies the hierarchy, I'm not sure you're going to find it. I, yeah. I, I don't I don't know. I don't know that that would have been seen even as an option and certainly not as a virtuous option. For sure. I agree with that. I do want to point at the moment Paris first appears. This is very early in book three. Um, and Lombardo does just a fantastic job. I, I said this on the last episode. Lombardo writes like it's an action movie. Um so it's a it's a very modern type of translation, um, but it, I think you see that really clearly here. So you have the two armies are are meeting at the beginning of book three. The fighting hasn't begun, but they've come up against each other right after that long catalog of of uh, generals in at the end of book two. Um, and when they had almost closed, was it a god? No, not a god, but Paris, who stepped out from the Trojan ranks, leopard skin on his shoulders, curved bow, sword, and shaking two bronze-tipped spears at the Greeks, he invited their best to fight him to the death. So when we see him for the first time, he looks so powerful and probably so beautiful that it would be reasonable for us to mistake him for a god. And yet, um, he's defined thereafter by his weakness rather than by his power. And I love how the animals change in that section. What do you mean? Uh, the the animals that people are compared to change. Uh, I'm going to start with the passage you just read. Now as these and their advance had come close together, Alexandros the godlike leapt from the ranks of the Trojans as challenger wearing across his shoulders the hide of a leopard, curved bow and sword, while in his hands shaking two javelins pointed with bronze, he challenged all the best of the Argives to fight man to man against him in combat. Now as soon as Menelaus the warlike caught sight of him making his way with long strides out in front of the army, he was glad, like a lion who comes on a mighty carcass in his hunger chancing upon the body of a horned stag or wild goat who eats it eagerly. So I think that's hilarious because you start with, uh, you start with Paris as a leopard, um, which is like fast and flashy. Right. And then, um, and then Menelaus is glad like a lion who comes on a carcass. So, uh, Paris goes from predator to prey, and then I think the specific animals that the prey are um, are very funny. A horned stag or a wild goat. Um, so those are both uh, sex jokes saying that Paris cannot keep it in his pants, and that's why we're all here. <laughs> well, that's true, though. I love that. That's a great close reading of that. I love it. Well, and you have, uh, again, uh, when I read Lombardo, I, it's, it's so cinematic that that's how I picture it. So you have this crowd of warriors parting so the godlike um, Paris can, can step out from among them. And then on the other side, it parts and Menelaus steps out. And then it's like the music changes to something funny and Paris sees him and walks right back into the crowd. 
I don't know. I don't know how funny it's supposed to be. I don't know if the people eating their banquet, listening to the bard reciting this poem, would have laughed at that. But um, it's pretty funny to me. It's it's almost a, a Gilligan cut. Right. Totally. Absolutely. That's a great picture of it. Gilligan just turning around. Um, I and just to go back to the animals thing. I don't know if y'all's translations have it, but um, when Paris turns, my translation says. Alexandrus quailed as he saw Menelaus come forward and shrank in fear of his life under cover of his men, as one who starts back affrighted, trembling and pale when he comes suddenly upon a serpent, serpent in some mountain glade. Even so did Alexandrus plunge into the throng of Trojan warriors, terror-stricken at the sight of the son of Atreus. So then, then uh, brave Menelaus Sir Robin ran away. <laughs> <laughs> right, but yeah, I think that. Um, just the different the different animals that are represented in that are are interesting. Um, I hadn't noticed how many times in those short in that short amount of verse you have that because even the opening paragraph, um, the Trojans advance as a flight of wild fowl or cranes that scream overhead when rain and winter drive them over the flowing waters of Oceanus to bring death and destruction upon the pygmies. Oh, it's interesting. Lombardo is very helpful in that he puts all the epic similes into they're indented and italicized so you can see them coming. Thanks. Although he doesn't do that with the snake, I guess. Well, it says as if he had seen. I don't know why that doesn't count as an epic simile for Lombardo. Mm -hmm. For our listeners who don't know that term, um, epic poetry is frequently marked by this very extended uh, simile that compares something on the page to something off the page. It's it's a it's all as much a hallmark of a. of epic poetry as the Inmadius race beginning in the middle of things uh, is, or the catalog. I, you, you can imagine the, the oral poet, you know, wowing his audience with these supposedly extemporized uh, epic similes. Probably had a stock of them the way freestyle rappers do have a stock of mm-hmm. lines to use. It's fascinating to think about it being you know, performed. Although I've, I've heard, I mean, there's no way the Iliad was ever performed for a single audience, right? It's too, it's too long. Uh, to, to recite this thing would take 20 banquets, not, uh, not one. So I, I don't, it's, nobody really knows the textual history of the Iliad, of course, because it, it goes back so far. But uh, it's, it's interesting to think of how the original audience would have encountered pieces of this poem rather than the poem itself. And of course, they all know the story anyway. So nobody's the the point here is not the plot the the point is the way the poet describes the plot, which goes back to your point, Victoria, about rhetor, uh, rhetoricians and rhetoric in Greek culture, you know. And, that, and to yours, Carla, because it's it's this is this is the way the poet uh, is is having power over uh, right. over his audience, and I mean that's why it's significant. Maybe that Homer was is traditionally said to have been blind. This is a man with no social power, who who manages to create a social role for himself. Right, well, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, we're coming up on an hour. Um, is there anything else you guys <laughs> want to talk about? Can we talk about how sad the very end of book four is? Sure. Say more about that. Um, just how much death in war 
affects everyone and the only commonality that you get from war is death. There no more could a man who was in that work make light of it, one who still unhit and still unstabbed by the sharp bronze spun in the midst of that fighting, with Pallas Athena's hold on his hand guiding him, driving back the volleying spears thrown. For on that day many men of the Achaeans and Trojans lay sprawled in the dust face downward beside one another. So Athena is doing stuff. She has agency, but um, everybody else is just in the dirt next to one another, and that is how they are equal. Yeah. Right. No one could trust his immunity any longer, Lombardo writes. But, well, and what's just rhetorically speaking, also, Victoria, the paragraph before that does the same thing where it takes two men whose names we don't know, one from each side, we ha- or we haven't heard before, but he shares them here, one from each side and tells how they die each of them, and then has them, their two bodies, laying next to each other, and then, you know, compounds that in the next paragraph to say, and that thing that I just focused in on was strewn across the field, you know, people from both sides laying laying side by side dead, you know. So that, that just rhetorically speaking, it's, it's to take two specifics, draw in close to them as if you're, you know, with a camera, right? It's a, it's a close up, it's a shot and you see the death and you see it in, in its detail. The one is actually struck by a stone on his ankle that, you know, destroys his tendons and, and everything at the back of his heel and he falls and then is, is pierced through. And then the other one, you know, and you see their deaths close up and then it's like the camera pans back and shows the whole field with that having happened hundreds of times in various ways. Very cinematic. Mm hmm. Yeah. But truly, I mean, I, I read this in high school and was bored stiff by it. And it's ama- it's amazing to me that I ever was because this is such a compelling book. Um, and there's so many things in it beyond just the battle. And yet the battle itself is still riveting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that the breadth of mythology that it draws from is, is just so massive. You can keep like saying following any one of the goddesses or gods and taking their story off in another direction and so everything that informs it, if you think about that, all the bits that inform what is here, which is a lot that's actually here. But if you were listening to it and you had awareness of all that mythology, it's just this whole complex array of stories and and conflicts. And I don't know. It's fascinating. I had to draw a diagram when I was reading this now. Like, I, I have no idea God bless my high school English teachers for getting me to follow all of this because now, like, I feel like I'm a better close reader with a PhD under my belt than I was when I was 15, Lord hopes. Um, (laughs) But uh, I just, like, I had to keep drawing a map and say, like, okay, these gods are pro-Greek and these gods are pro-Trojan and Achaean means this and, like... Ajax doesn't have an X in it here, but that's Ajax. Yeah, it's <laughs> confusing. Big Ajax and little Ajax. That's my favorite thing. Well, anyway, we've got uh, 20 more books of the Iliad to watch people get spears to their necks and lungs and uh, everything else. <laughs> Next week, uh, you'll want to read books five and six. Victoria and Carla, thank you for talking with about these books with me today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. That was fun. We've got pretty extensive show notes on our website, which is christianhumanist.org. 
The core curriculum is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Thanks for listening.